Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. This month, we're going to do something a little bit different. Just this past February, I helped organize Whistler's Update in Emergency Medicine Conference. It was the 25th year anniversary, and this year was one of the best ever. We had a lot of speakers from emergency medicine cases there, and what I did was recorded the entire conference. Unfortunately, not all the audio was recorded properly, but of the audio that was recorded properly, I edited it down to just the highlights, the practical stuff that I thought you could use in your general everyday practice. The nice thing about this conference is that it's pretty small. There are about 175 participants, so there was a lot of group discussion and small workshops, which are great for learning. So without further ado, we're going to start off with one of Dr. Latovsky's workshops on cardiac cases. The cases that I'm going to present this morning are cases that you don't see very often. So the first case is you get a patch, you get a call from EMS. About a, they're bringing in a 58-year-old guy with crushing retrosternal chest pain. Five minutes later, they patch again, and they say now, en route, he's become extremely short of breath, and he's really become diaphoretic. They say he's got no past medical history, and he's on no medication. So no past history. He was pale, he was clammy, he was really diaphoretic. He did not look good at all. So you need a stat ECG, and there's the ECG. What is this? An inferior MI, right? It's not a diagnostic dilemma. There's ST segment elevation, 2, 3, and AVF, right? There are ST segment depressions across the anteroperacorial leads. There are no question there are reciprocal leads. So we have an acute inferior MI, but what's his clinical picture? He's an acute congestified failure. Am I right? He's an acute pulmonary edema. Let's go back to the cardiogram. What doesn't fit? First of all, is this a massive inferior or a smaller inferior? Are there massive ST segment elevations or are there just a couple of millimeters in every lead? In fact, you could call this a relatively smallish inferior MI. So we have a relatively smallish inferior MI and a guy who's really bad off in acute pulmonary edema. Normally, what kind of myocardial infarction do we see acute pulmonary edema? Left ventricular, severe left, left ventricular systolic dysfunction. Massive anteriors, right? You get, you know, ST tombstoning right across the precordial leads in the bad anterior MIs is when you see acute pulmonary edema. So why is this guy in acute pulmonary edema? What are the possibilities? What are the possibilities? What are the possible causes of someone to be in congestive heart failure with, you know, acute inferior MI? There are probably about four possible causes. Papillary muscle, good thought. Maybe this is really, a, you know, a dissection and it's mimicking an inferior MI now. Maybe he's had an infarct in the past, right? Maybe he's had a bad anterior infarction in the past, right? And now a new inferior on top of a, of a bad coronary disease, bad ventricle to begin with is just put him over the edge, right? Maybe he's had an old remote anterior that we don't know about. He's been walking around with a grade three ventricle for all these years. You know, some people have anatomical variants. They have a dominant RCA, which is feeding the anterior part of the heart. Maybe he has, you know, weird anatomy with a very, very dominant right coronary artery, and this is enough to put a heart failure. And what's the piece of the physical that I didn't tell you about that we're often negligent to look very carefully for in the, in the emergency department? Heart sounds. Is it important to listen to heart sounds? 
you know, these patients come into Rosas and, you know, it's noisy and you, and everybody, you know, you get six nurses there and two are starting IVs. One is shouting orders for medications. And we tend not to listen to the heart sounds carefully enough in the emergency department. When you go into this room, when you go into this resuscitation room, you know what the first thing you should say when you, when you go up to this guy? You know what the first thing you should say in the resuscitation room? You should say, shh. It's got to be quiet because you've got to listen to hard sounds. What if I told you this guy had a loud, pansystolic, holosystolic murmur at the apex? So here Dr. Latovsky is referring to a papillary muscle rupture of the mitral valve, and he's going to go on to explain the causes of congestive heart failure in a patient with an inferior MI. The causes of congestive heart failure and inferior MIs. One, he could be having an arrhythmia, right? He could be either tachycardic or bradycardic, right? He could have had a previous MI remotely at another location. He could have had an old anterior MI, so he's walking around with a, a crappy ventricle, and now a new inferior MI just puts him over the edge. Ischemia at a distance, we talk about an occluded artery to the inferior wall, supplying the anterior wall via collateral, so he's got, you know, dominant, dominant right circulation, and mechanical complication, papal dysfunction. So I just want to talk a little bit about mechanical complications of acute myocardial infarction. We don't see them all that often, but they come in, and, and these patients are really, really sick. So there's three types of mechanical complications you need to be aware of. First of all, there's free wall rupture. The whole wall of the myocardium can rupture. These patients, as a general rule, don't even make it to your emergency. They come in DOA, right? These patients come in VSA. You can have a rupture between the ventricles, it's intraventricular rupture, or you can have an acute papillary muscle rupture, and these patients present differently. The free wall ruptures, those patients come in VSA. They come sudden shock, tamponade, and these patients die quickly, right? These patients don't live. Patients with the interventricular septal ruptures, these patients present with profound shock, you know, grossly distended neck veins, and you put your hand on their chest, and they have, uh, you can feel the murmur, you can feel the thrill across the ventricular rupture, right? It's, it's very, very impressive. And then the third thing that you have to remember is acute papillary muscle rupture. And these are the patients who present with acute pulmonary edema. Um, and you've got to listen for the murmur because it's there and it's loud and it's holosystolic. And it's right there over the apex, right? Murmurs over the apex are mitral regurgitant murmurs. Listen to that carefully, right? Murmurs over the apex are mitral regurgitant murmurs. Don't ever ignore them. The papillary muscle rupture, it's almost always seen just in inferior MIs, not the anterior MIs, and they present with uh, sudden pulmonary edema with holosystolic murmur. Papillary muscle dysfunction, you can get transient dysfunction of the papillary muscle dysfunction in acute inferior MIs. So for those of you who take care, uh, who work in maybe small hospitals and take care of uh, small and complicated inferior MIs in your CCUs or whatever, it's common to hear a bit of a murmur two or three days after acute inferior MIs, which then gradually gets better after about a week. So that's, that's common, but those patients obviously are less ill. So you remember this from anatomy days. This is the uh, medial papillary muscle. There's lateral papillary muscles, and just the inferior, uh, the right coronary artery feeds the blood supply to these papillary muscles, and uh, just a small infarct is what you need. You don't need a massive infarct. Just a small inferior MI is all you need sometimes to disrupt the papillary muscle. So this patient had to be transferred for an urgent uh, 
uh, cath. He was, we, I sent him to the Toronto General, and at 4 o'clock in the morning, he had his catheterization. He had his mitral valve replaced, and he had Ford vessel cabbage. Um, and you need to transfer these patients out quickly, because the only thing that can save these patients or on a temporary basis is the intraaortic balloon pump. So you need to get these patients out of your emergency departments to a, you know, a place like Toronto General, someplace that can do the acute valve replacement. Case number two. This is a 31-year-old uh, female who presents to uh, the emergency department short of breath. She's a G3P2, five days postpartum after an uncomplicated vaginal delivery. So she'd been complaining for shortness of breath for three weeks and worse with lying down, worse with exertion, associated with some swelling of her ankles. She's been to Emerge once. She's been to her family doctor once and she saw her obstetrician, three physicians, all told her the same thing. Normal in pregnancy, it'll get better, right? Three visits, including ones to emerge. No fevers, coughs, everything else is completely unremarkable. Peripartum cardiomyopathy. This is not a diagnosis that you want to miss, and you can miss it because, the, because they don't come in as florid as she did. Sometimes they just come in with mild symptoms, shortness of breath, a little dyspnea, and they tend to be trivialized. People tend to say it's normal in third trimester pregnancy, and they, and they get sent away. And this is a disease that actually can resolve on its own. It can. Mild cases of, of cardiomyopathy can resolve on its own, and these patients get forgotten until the next pregnancy when they present with florid pulmonary edema. So this is a dilated cardiomyopathy without a known etiology. There's no known etiology to this disease. It can or can may, it may or may not be associated with preeclampsia. You can have cardiomyopathy, peripartum cardiomyopathy, without eclampsia. It's the third trimester or postpartum. More common in the older gravid patients, um, mothers with twins, and women of African descent. Um, it's important to remember this is an important diagnosis to make for these two reasons. First of all, 50% of these patients have a complete recovery. Great. Recovery to normal clinical status and normal cardiac function with six months. As if nothing's happened. Uh, but those patients need to be counseled. Because those women need to be counseled not to get pregnant again. And it's critical because the next time they get pregnant, it may happen again. And, and the other 50% have persistent left ventricular dysfunction and may need a cardiac transplant or suffer early death. So it's one of the reasons for people to have cardiac, be on the cardiac transplant list is significant left ventricular dysfunction because of peripartum cardiomyopathy. If you work in a busy obstetrical center, if you see a place that does 5,000 deliveries a year, you'll see several of these a year. You will see several of these a year at a busy obstetrical place that does 5,000 deliveries a year. So third trimester pregnancy, or in the early postpartum pregnancy, shortness of breath, don't trivialize it. We talked about postpartum cardiomyopathy a little bit in episode four on congestive heart failure with Dr. Latovsky and Dr. Steinhardt. One of the worst cases I ever had personally was postpartum cardiomyopathy. It was one of the few cases of congestive heart failure that I couldn't resuscitate. And the, this was a 36-year-old woman who died under my care. And they presented in flurred pulmonary edema. We threw everything at her. She coded. She was unable to be resuscitated. And again, she was actually seen a few times for shortness of breath in the previous two weeks, and uh, no one picked it up at that time. So the key with this is to try and pick it up early before you get to the point where you have life-threatening pulmonary edema. Case number three, 
This is a uh, 37-year-old female African-American who was nine days postpartum. Normal pregnancy, spontaneous vaginal delivery. She wakes up at four in the morning with severe kind of crampy chest pain at 4.30 in the morning while sleeping. Comes in, rates it at eight out of 10. Rating to the arms bilaterally, but pleuritic. And uh, she said she's really short of breath. So 37-year-old, sudden onset of chest pain at 4.30 in the morning, rating to both arms, short of breath, maybe a little pleuritic component. No thromboembolic risk factors, other than the fact that she was postpartum. No sickle cell family history. There wasn't any radiation to the back. Could she have a dissection? Yeah, she could. Maybe she's got undiagnosed Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. or Mar Maybe she's marfanoid. You don't know anything about, much about her, right? She could have a dissection, right? No, she got no neurological symptoms, though. Pain wasn't relieved by position, right? Could she have pericarditis? Sure, I guess you can, right? Pleuritic chest pain, she could have a pericarditis. Pain wasn't relieved by position. No fever, recent infection symptoms. Past medical history, yeah, not very remarkable. G4P3, cholecystectomy in the past, right? That causes pain, non-smoker, no drugs specifically, no cocaine, right? How many of you routinely ask about cocaine for young people with chest pain? A couple of you, really, really an important consideration. Right, especially if they have ST segment elevations, because the treatment of ST segment elevation myocardial infarction is very different in patients who are taking cocaine, who've taken cocaine, right? Here's a physical examination. So she was in a lot of distress. Her heart sounds were normal. Her chest was clear. Her calves weren't swollen or tender. Her abdomen was soft. Really normal vital signs. So give me a differential diagnosis. PE, pericarditis, really good thought. Yeah, she got pleuritic, severe chest pain, absolutely. MI, maybe she got an MI. Am I? Pneumothorax. Maybe she's got attention pneumothorax. Really good thought. So here's her ECG. So Dr. Lutovsky just put up an ECG that looks essentially normal. Chest x-ray was normal. LFT is normal. Sickle cell screen that was done. She was African-American. was negative. D-dimer was positive. Some of you wouldn't have ordered it anyways because you figure, well, it's going to be positive anyway. She's recently postpartum. Um, she was sent for a CT. No pulmonary embolism. Her troponin came back at 38.7. Troponin was positive. Got a normal ECG. You've got a massively elevated troponin. Is it just troponitis? Is it just a false positive? <laughs> Are you going to bring her back to troponin clinic in the morning? <laughs> well, here's the next ECG. So she's got some flipped T waves. So now she's flipping her T's laterally. She needs an angiogram, right? She needs an echo and she needs an angiogram. So here's her echocardiogram. She had a lot of apical ballooning, anteroapical ballooning. It was akinetic. Grade two to three, mildly elevated right-sided pressures. And her, this is what her angiogram showed. Left main was normal. And in the LAD, there was an abrupt change in the caliber just proximal to the uh, first septal perforator with a long area of stenosis in the mid part of the vessel. But normal tummy three flow all the way down, though. This is what's called a spontaneous coronary artery dissection. It just mimics an acute myocardial infarction. For all intents and purposes, it's, it's, an acute per, it's, a, it's a dissection. Just like a uh, thoracic dissection, the etiology is exactly the same. Uh, thought to be underestimated. More often in women, when it does happen, it's often in the peripartum area, period. It's often in the peripartum period. Uh, they present with sudden cardiac death or not, but it can present as unstable angina, non-STEMI, or STEMIs, CHF, and, the left anterior descending is the most common, common site of this. So, so again, 
you, just like a thoracic dissection, you get a tear in the intima. That tear then becomes a, a focus or nidus for thrombus development. You get a false lumen, and you get uh, you know, the whole vessel occluding. So in fact, it mimics an acute thrombus caused by arteriosclerotic disease, right? So it's a, you know, it, it mimics an acute myocardial infarction. She was treated medically and uh, anticoagulated. They did not put a stent in her, and, and uh, she, did, she did actually well. So spontaneous uh, coronary artery dissection. Case number four is really, really important, so I really want you to pay attention. 15-year-old boy brought to the emergency department complaining of three to four-week history of migrating joint pain. Intermittent fevers off and on. His mother said he was kind of, you know, you know, having fevers off and on. Decreased energy, decreased appetite, and weight loss. Five kilogram weight loss. A 15-year-old boy, it's a lot of weight. So his past history, reactive airway disease, some eczema, his immunizations that were up to date, five healthy siblings. His heart rate was 87. He was afebrile. His blood pressure was normal. His chest was clear. Joints were normal, and the skin was clear. So this was the lab stuff. The urinalysis were normal. Sed rate was 42. Chest x-ray was normal. An ECG was normal. He looked pretty well. The kid apparently looked pretty well. So this is what happened to the kid. The provisional diagnosis was juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, uh, rule out viral reaction arthritis, rule out SBE. It was less likely. They thought it wasn't very likely because he was afebrile. Possible malignancy. He was discharged on Advil, Q6. They sent off a bunch of blood work. They sent off blood cultures. They sent off ANA, C3, C4, C5, C6, C7, C8, all the Cs. I've never ordered those Cs in my life. So he comes back 48 hours later. He's, now he's still complaining of his, you know, all his joints are sore. He's still having fevers documented, 38.1, 38.4 at home. He's lethargic. He's got some more weight loss. New family history that was able to be obtained at that point. Two of the five siblings had culture-proven strep throat two months previously, although the kid himself denied a history of sore throat. The kid himself denied a history of sore throat. And this was his exam on, this, on the uh, day that he came back. S1 is too normal. It was thought that he had a three out of six panholosystolic murmur, the apex. <laughs> Joints were normal, and his skin was normal. And his echo done on an emergency basis showed moderately severe mitral regurg, Second mitral leaflets, uh, some left atrial enlargement, left ventricular enlargement, probable small effusion, but you know, fortunately no vegetations. Uh, chest x-ray was still normal, ECG was normal, blah, blah, blah. S-sed rate, second visit was 75. His blood cultures turned out negative. His ACO2 was negative. And his diagnosis then? How many of you have ever seen a case of acute rheumatic fever? The reason this case is so important, in the Mississauga-Halton region last winter, we had four cases of this. So whether it's a new virulent strep strain that is beginning to emerge or whatever, I would urge you to consider this diagnosis and review it because we may be starting to see a resurgent. This is not a disease that you can miss. So his acute rheumatic fever was diagnosed based on the fact that he had one major criterion and three minor criterion. He was put on penicillin. He was put on Genta. He was put on aspirin. Just to remind you what the, the revised Jones criteria for the diagnosis of acute rheumatic fever are. It requires the evidence of recent strep infection, so you need to have evidence of recent strep infection, which is either culture-proven or rising titers. And then you need two major criterion, or one major plus two minor criterion. And just to remind you what the major criterion 
needs, so you need to have either two major or one major and two minor criteria. The major criteria are the arthritis, the carditis, any kind of cardiovascular stuff, prolonged PR interval, tachycardia, murmur, you know, any of that kind of stuff. Chorea, the abnormal movements that these kids get, the hypotonia, the emotional liability, so they get psychological or neurological changes. They get a rash, or they get subcutaneous uh, nodules. These are the major criterion. Uh, the minor criterion are the joint pains without any evidence of acute arthritis, fevers, the lab of increased sed rate and CRP or prolonged PR intervals. So he had a repeat echo, um, and he had severe torrential mitral regurg, and he was shipped to the big house for uh, urban surgeon, just as you predicted. These, patients, these kids can decompensate very, very quickly and require emergency surgery or they, they can die. So this is a serious disease. You want to be on the lookout for it with a history of fever, joint pains, rash, uh, don't, and don't neglect the murmurs, right? Don't just pass it off by saying maybe it's be just a flow murmur, whatever. Have a good listen to the heart. To remind you what the teaching points for these four cases were. One, acute pulmonary edema uh, in the setting of, well, in any setting, have a good listen to the heart sounds, right? If there's acute mitral regurgitation, if you hear a murmur, you have to act on it, and you need to get a stat echo one way or another. You need to transfer them to a place that can do echoes. Peripartum, shortness of breath, don't slough it off. Uh, you don't want to miss peripartum cardiomyopathy. Peripartum and chest pain, think PE, but think about coronary artery dissection. Of course, the treatment in the emergency department is really going to be the same. You're going to treat them like an acute coronary syndrome anyways because you're not going to have access to an angiogram. You're going to treat them like an acute coronary syndrome anyways. Aspirin, you know, heparin, et cetera, et cetera, which would be the treatment for this patient anyways. Fourthly, kids with joint pains, fevers, heart findings, think acute rheumatic fever. Thanks very much, everybody. So that was Dr. Latofsky's cardiac cases talk, which I thought was phenomenal. Next, I'm going to play you an expert panel that I moderated with, again, Dr. Latofsky, with Dr. David McKinnon, Dr. Connie LeBlanc, and Dr. Joel Yaffe. And we're going to talk about imaging for patients with renal colic and appendicitis. To image or not to image, that is the question. The first case is a 30-year-old man. He has two hours of severe left flank pain, similar to a previous kidney stone. He has no fever, no nausea or vomiting, normal urine, normal bowel movements. He's got left CVA tenderness on exam. His abdomen's soft and non-tender, and his urine dip is positive for blood. Your typical renal colic case. The second case is a 30-year-old man, same age. He's got progressive abdominal pain over 24 hours that now is localized to the right lower quadrant. He's got a low-grade fever, nausea, but no vomiting. His urine and bowel movements are normal. His temp is 37.9. He's tender at McBurney's point. There's no peritoneal signs. His urine and routine blood work are normal. So a sort of typical presentation for appendicitis. So we've got a renal colic patient, a 30-year-old renal colic patient, and a 30-year-old query appendicitis patient. So let's start with the renal colic patient. How do you work this patient up? He's had kidney stones before. He's had a CT before. He passed his stone the last time he had this episode. How do you work this patient up? Do you do a KUB x-ray? Do you do a renal ultrasound? Do you do uh, another CT? Or again, do you just hand him over to the next guy? <laughs> if you're walking in the woods in Quebec in the middle of the winter and you see a horse with antlers, it's probably a moose. This guy's 34. We know he has a kidney stone. He comes in and tells us he has a kidney stone. What does he have? 
a kidney stone. I would just manage his pain. Yeah, I think you finished the workup with the $2 urine dipstick. End of workup. Yeah, I think the recurrent, I think, we, I think, you know, radiation, especially in young people, I think it's a real issue. Patients tend to get multiple stones every couple of years, the, you know, the, the stone patient, so to speak. And if you scan them every single time they come in, they're going to get a lot of radiation by the time they're 50. Yeah, is there anything that you'd worry about in patients with renal colic that, let's say, you didn't work them up, anything that could go bad? So what are the M&M cases we've all seen where somebody diagnosed with renal colic? So you always think about AAA. So if the patient have any marfanoid features that might make you think a 30-year-old has a AAA, make sure you've examined the testicles, because that's the classic one that can look, look exactly like renal colic. If you've done those and you've been very careful. Infection. You'll yeah, infection. That on your, yeah. Right. Yeah, let's, say, let's say the urine dip showed uh, some white cells. Would that change how you did things? If it, he would have to sick? have clinical infection. You know, he'd have to... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I would, I would worry about a stone if it's a potentially infected stone. So if I see the white cells in the urine or a fever or other, you know, not so much a white count because we see high white counts with renal colic all the time. But anything that makes me think that there might be an infected stone, then, yeah, I probably want to image. And I might start with ultrasound, just, again, thinking of the radiation issue. What you want to find out, if there's a big, fat stone that's impacted in the ureter, that's going to need to be, like, going to need some help to get out. Right, so those patients who have a septic kidney stone, who are infected and have a kidney stone, what, what, do, you, what do those patients need? They need well, to be drained. They need a perk or some kind of drainage procedure okay. to, to... Yeah, yeah it's uh, funny. It's another one of those things that I think has changed since I finished residency, because when I first came out, we're all taught that it's an absolute emergency. These patients all get admitted, IV antibiotics, and get the stone taken care of right away. And I'm in a stone center at St. Mike's, and I can tell you what they do is they come, urology will come and see the patient. If they look well, they'll give them some antibiotics and they go home. That's yes. essentially what they do. But Dave, that's so, if they look well, so That's right? if they look, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you've got the febrile patient that's unwell, then yeah, they're going to need to come in, probably get uh, either a perk drain or um, a ureteric stent. stent to relieve the obstruction, and then arrange for urgent lithotripsy. Aside from infection, so let's say this guy, he's 30 years old, so you're going to dip his urine, you're going to treat his pain, what if this person was 70? Would your workup be any different? So same person has had renal colic before. He said it feels like renal colic. He's got some blood in the urine. You start treating his pain. His pain settles down in the eMERGE. If he's 70? Yeah, my man, I'm more worried, obviously. If he's, had a real, if he's had a kidney stone 30 years ago, I'm still getting a CT on a 70-year-old guy with back pain, right? Yep. It's an aneurysm until proven otherwise. It's not just another stone, right? Maybe. But obviously, I'm going to over-investigate a 70-year-old with back pain rather than under-investigate. So he gets the full blood work, et cetera, and a diagnostic image of some sort. Let's say someone's had a, a single CT in the past that's confirmed that they have kidney stones and no anatomical abnormalities. If, a, if you're worried about a patient with a kidney stone, what about ultrasound? I mean, how does ultrasound compare to CT? Will an ultrasound miss anything dangerous in a patient with renal colic? So in ultrasound, you may not see a low-lying small stone, but I'm not sure that that's really what you care about. If you think it's renal colic and you see hydro and you can't identify a stone, um, and they've had stones in the past, uh, it's not going to change much of what you do. You may get some less detail, but I think uh, ultrasound is completely fine as, a, as an initial diagnostic test in a lot of people. So generally speaking, an ultrasound will pick up anything sinister. If there's a lot of hydro or if there's a huge stone, then the ultrasound will pick it up. But for tiny stones, the ultrasound will miss it. But that is kind of irrelevant because they'll pass those anyhow. Yeah, I would okay. agree. All right. 
So our second patient is the query appendicitis, and I'm going to ask a similar question. So you've got this 30-year-old with sort of a typical presentation of appendicitis. Does this patient require an ultrasound? And if that doesn't give you the answer, do you go on, C go on to a CT? So, you know, sometimes you get these ultrasounds that are equivocal. Or do you get the ultrasound, and if the ultrasound, again, if that's equivocal, they say they can't see the appendix, do you then refer the patient? Or do you get a plain CT for this patient? Or do you get a CT with contrast for this patient? Or do you say, I think this guy has appendicitis, I'm just going to call the surgeon and they can take him to the OR? I wouldn't do any testing. I'd examine the patient, make sure he doesn't have croupus colitis, listen to his chest, examine his testicles. If all that's normal and he looks like appendicitis, he's a guy, it's probably not his ovary, the surgeon can see him. I would agree. One of my colleagues uh, just came up with uh, an abdominal pain protocol at St. Mike's. It's been very useful. In fact, probably what triggered it was uh, this whole wait time strategy that I think Ontario's been on and I think a lot of other provinces are sort of getting on, reducing the wait times in the ED. So we found there was a long time to imaging for abdominal pain patients, long waits for all the different steps. So to coalesce that, we came up with an abdominal pain protocol. But in it, for appendicitis actually, and we've got the surgeons on board with this, that if you have a young male with a good story, plus or minus a fever, plus or minus a white count, they don't have to have those, then we can actually refer to general surgery without any imaging whatsoever, which I thought was pretty revolutionary because the old style was like, what did the CT show? And so that culture is kind of slowly changing, I think. But they will take, and we've seen them take them to the OR now without any imaging. So female is very different because ovarian pelvic pathology can look just like appendicitis, so they will want an ultrasound in the female, young female. But the young male, they don't require any imaging. Yeah. You know, it's a cultural thing, though, too, right? I mean, you have to know the culture of your place and what the surgeon's like. I mean, you can't make decisions by yourself. This has got to be a multidisciplinary approach to patients. You know, I find a lot of patients who come with belly pain, a lot of these guys don't read the textbook, though, before they come to see us, right? They don't come in with the classic story of pain starting here and then rating to the right lower quadrant. I mean, in, in 31 years of practice, actually, I can think of a handful of patients who present that way. The majority don't present that typically, though. You know, sudden onset of pain or pain that's more suprapubically. You know, a lot of patients present atypically. In fact, in my experience, more, more patients present atypically than typically, in which case I think you do need some kind of imaging like a CT sound or ultrasound. For the, for the straight, straightforward, you know, I think a phone call to the surgeon, say it's really straightforward and just asking if they want something is a reasonable approach too. Okay. I think if you do have that right. equivocal patient and you want to image, and the young patient, really try for ultrasound. Yeah, I agree Really with that. try for ultrasound and avoid the radiation yeah. if you can. Okay. I know if it's well, 7 at night, your ultrasound's not And then if it's non-diagnostic, you re-examine them, see if they need a CT scan. So what are the numbers like in terms of sensitivity for, for ultrasound and adult appendicitis? It's very radiologist dependent. Mm -hmm. It's what sort of, the, if you're in a a center where they do a lot, maybe that's another reason to start ordering more because your radiologist will get better at it and pick it up. But, mm. but if you're in a center where they do a lot of it, you know, the number can be very high. I've seen as high as at 90%, but that's in a very, a center that does a lot, a lot of appendix ultrasounds. But yeah. and remember a lot of times, it, the straight sensitivity isn't all that matters. All you need to do sometimes is rule out other pathology. So um, a non-diagnostic ultrasound in somebody that clinically has appendicitis may be enough to go with. They don't necessarily need a CT. Yeah, this is a perfect transition into our pediatric. Because my understanding at sick kids now, what they do is that their sensitivities are very high for appendicitis. They'll do an ultrasound on their kids with query appendicitis. And if that's equivocal, they'll observe the patient 
and then if they're still concerned, then they'll repeat the ultrasound rather than going to CT. So that was a bit about imaging in the adult emergency patient with renal colic and appendicitis. Now we're going to transition into a pediatric expert panel with Dr. Anna Jarvis, Dr. Adam Cheng, who's from Calgary, and Dr. Dennis Skolnick, who works at SickKids in Toronto. As an extension to previous discussion, the six-year-old who comes into emerge with belly pain, Dennis, uh, into your institution now with belly pain and mostly tender on the right lower quadrant. Uh, what are you guys doing for that six-year-old with right lower quadrant pain? Okay, so if we suspect appendicitis, and there's actually an appendicitis score that's been developed and validated. There have been several decision rules for pediatric appendicitis that we went over in our episode number 19 of pediatric appendicitis. And just to review those, there's the Alvarado score, that if you get uh, an Alvarado score of more than six, the sensitivity is about 72%, and you get one point each for migration of pain to the right lower quadrant, anorexia, nausea, vomiting, tenderness in the right lower quadrant, rebound pain, fever, leukocytosis, and left shift. Then there's the Samuel score, or the pediatric appendicitis score, that if you have more than a score of five, the sensitivity is about 82%, and you get one point each for right lower quadrant tenderness elicited by cough, hopping or percussion tenderness, anorexia, fever, nausea or vomiting, tenderness over the right iliac fossa, leukocytosis, left shift, and migration of pain. So Dr. Skolnick's going to talk about what they've been doing at SickKids with their new appendicitis score that they're developing. And if you have a score of more than 7 out of uh, 10, officially the head of surgery has said, you can phone my resident or fellow, we will see the patient, and you do not need to do any other tests. Every time we phone the team, they insist on doing tests unless we're actually going to wake up the boss at 3 o'clock in the morning and say, you know, you're junior, um, and tell stories. It, 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 so there's this dilemma that the, officially you can make the diagnosis of appendicitis in a child just like you can in an adult, and you don't need to do any tests, and I agreed with the previous speakers. But practically, sometimes they need some evidence. So if it's a clear-cut case, get the surgeon involved quickly. If there's anything equivocal we are going to need some testing. The basic things, first, we would still do a urine to rule things out. A CBC looking at the white count might be useful. The question really comes with the ultrasound and uh, CT. In uh, our institution, also, it depends whether you're getting your ultrasound in the daytime or the nighttime. At the nighttime, it's going to have a more um, false negatives and false positives. I think the bottom line would be that an ultrasound, yes, we would go to that first because of the irradiation in children almost across the board. If you're going to do a test beyond the urine and the blood, it's going to be an ultrasound. But we've had many cases, I had actually two on one shift that I didn't believe and my fellow actually drew the charts and showed me where we had ultrasound completely normal and the kid had a positive CT and had appendicitis. So you've got to be very careful of the ultrasound. It's supportive, almost to emote your surgeon to listen to you. And that's not a very good way of using a test, but it's sometimes what we've had to do. The final arbiter becomes the CT, and even then we know that you still have to go on clinical. So if I was going to answer you, it's not black and white. If it's, if it's clear-cut with history and exam, call the surgeon straight away. If you need something to, in a way, it's almost on buying that for six or eight hours, you do some tests. 
And there, there's a study going on at the moment uh, with Suzanne Shu and others to, to literally see if we can do ultrasound without the CT a period examination at four hours and repeat the ultrasound, and then only go to the RADS. So I don't think the evidence is out. It's a spectrum thing. Uh, also, just a, a shout out, do remember that very little children get appendicitis, the one-year-olds, the two-year-olds. Invariably, they've perforated by the time docs see them, and those are kids that can die. So you've got to suspect the diagnosis and um, be careful in the younger age groups. Now, last year I moved to Calgary and for the children who are more uh, convincing, we would certainly go ahead and just call surgery, have them come down, assess the child. The child will most likely go directly to the operating room. Um, for those that you're not, not so sure of, those are the child, children that may get ultrasounds. And the ones where you have a slightly lower index of suspicion, uh, those are the kids that might just kind of get observed for a bit or sent home and asked to come back in, in 12 hours. Um, the one caveat that I'll say is that if you have like uh, an older girl um, obviously, I've had a lower index, I have a lower threshold to order an ultrasound because I want to make sure that it's not ovarian in nature. Let's move on to the next case. This is a nine-month-old child who's just learning to uh, walk, a premature walker, and is brought in by parents. The kid falls, hits his head on the hardwood floor uh, while cruising, and uh, there's no loss of consciousness, no vomiting, but comes in with a very large swelling. You know, we always ask about the swelling with the presence of cephalohematoma. This kid comes in with a very large cephalotoma. It's a small grapefruit, but otherwise looks well. The vitals are normal. He's cooperative. Uh, the exam is otherwise re unremarkable, except it's a very large swelling. It's 9 p.m. Anna, I'll give this to you. Uh, X-ray or no X-ray, observe, no observe, specifically the role of value of a plain skull X-ray in determining your disposition. Excellent, because this is a common problem, and you keep emphasizing the size of the hematoma. First, 9 p.m. at night, what the hell was this nine-month-old nine doing out of bed, you know? And I really want to, you know, listen, parenting in this country is something else. Um, <laughs> Nine o'clock at night, I want to know why that young child was up. Were the parents attentive? What were they doing? And is that the routine? Because always when I see a very large swelling with minimal trauma in the history, I'm thinking child abuse. And folks, I can just tell you, I leave that out there with you. Be very careful. I'd examine that kid from head to toe. If you, you know, if you don't cruise, you don't bruise. And are there any um, bruises in the dapper area or covered areas? I'll be looking very carefully in the mouth for signs of trauma, forced feeding. And I'd really want to make sure that this kid's height and weight were okay. So that's just my suspicious mind, but I really want to know what's happening. Secondly, with this swelling being so very large, if the child's behaving normally, at that age, the fontanelle's open, I can feel the fontanelle. I'm not worried about a head injury. I'm concerned, is this the first presentation of a bleeding disorder? I've seen hemophiliacs and others present all the way up to two years of age, with minor traumas, because the first time a tooth comes out, the first time they have a, any kind of trauma, you see the bleeding. Because to have a very big <coughs> swelling with that minimal trauma 
is unusual. So I have to tell you that I would probably get some coag studies done on this child before I do anything else, after my history, examination, and then by the time I get that back, that's an hour's time, I'm going to examine that kid again from head to toe. And if I don't feel anything that feels like a fracture and the kid's perfectly well and there's no bleeding disorder, I wouldn't do anything. Okay. Adam, would you do a skull x-ray? Um, so I would. Um, so a few reasons why. Um, so um, it, even in kids, in kids who fall, under, under the age of two is really the cutoff if you look at the literature. So under the age of two, kids who fall, uh, normal examination, and they have a hematoma, 11% of them will have a skull fracture. Okay, so, and then the question is, well, what percent of them will actually have any sort of significant intracranial injury? Still very small, but, you know, if your child fell and had a boggy hematoma, wouldn't you want to know if there was intracranial injury? I mean, if they fell, had a hematoma and a skull fracture, you know, wouldn't you be interested to know if there was intracranial injury? Uh, I, I guess that most of you would. So, so I would. Um, the literature states that uh, if it's a large and boggy hematoma, we should be considering uh, uh, skull x-rays. Uh, they don't define what large means. So is it two centimeters, is it three centimeters? None of us know because none of the studies that looked at this really defined that properly. Um, what they did find though was that hematomas that were on the side of the head, so parietal or, or temporal hematomas, had a higher incidence of underlying skull fracture compared with those in the front of the head. And so I throw that out there as a, as a piece of uh, information which will help you perhaps have a lower threshold to do an x-ray. Uh, once the x-ray is done, then you're faced with a conundrum because you have this x-ray and um, there has actually been a study that's shown that we as emergency physicians, pediatric emergency physicians, adult emergency physicians, even radiologists, are, are notoriously poor at interpreting skull x-rays. <laughs> And so the recommendation from that study was that if you get a skull x-ray, make sure you get a radiologist to look at it. Well, all of us know that that's not always feasible, depending on where you work and uh, what time of day it is. Okay, so, so Adam, uh, you're getting the, you've got the skull x-ray, and the radiologist calls you and says, yeah, there's uh, Adam, uh, you're bang on, uh, there's a crack right there, and, it's, and right. now it's 9.20. You go back and reassess the kid. The kid looks well. He's alert. He's playful. Admit, send home. Right. So once you get an x-ray, and um, if, you, if you get an x-ray, one, you need to prepare to re re interpret it. <laughs> and two, if it's abnormal, you need to be prepared to CT the child. So there was one study that looked at skull x-rays, and they found that with a skull x-ray, it increased the incidence of intracranial injuries by fourfold. So essentially, if you see a, x if you see a fracture on your skull x-ray, you're kind of hooped and you have to do a CT scan. And so I would do a CT scan in this child. Actually, just before I came here, um, just building on what Dr. Jarvis had just said, um, I had a five-month-old who came in with a very large boggy swelling uh, on the side of his head. I did a skull x-ray. There was a large linear, uh, long linear skull fracture in, in the parietal bone. We ended up getting a CT scan okay. to confirm that. Dennis, are you going to CT this kid? Well, the thing that I would want to add is, so you do this... You've got to take care of the abuse side, and I think that is the big elephant in the room. But after that, so what if there's a skull x-ray that's got a fracture? So what if there's a small subdural in children? So all of these studies have said, what's the chance of finding significant intracranial in, uh, injury? And 
the, the word is what's significant. And really what it comes down to is do they need an intervention? Do we need to do something about it? And the percentages go even smaller than what Adam has quoted there. And it depends, therefore, what it is that we're trying to find. If we're looking to take the family to court or to protect the child, we are being very vigilant on finding anything because there shouldn't be anything. But if we're actually saying, are there going to be missed cases that an intervention, that we had a chance to do something and we didn't do it, I think the percentages go very, very, very low if there's a normal physical exam, especially if you've kept them for a couple of hours and they remain normal. And then if you say they've got good follow-up, you warn the parents well, uh, good, they can be seen soon, the, the chance of, of having to do it for the, not take out the medical legal, for the medical reasons become low. A good history and a good exam and some good follow-up, as long as abuse is taken care of, can, can be relied upon more than I think people are uh, prepared to at the moment. So, uh, this kid did have a skull fracture, was admitted to pediatrics, did not have a CT scan, was observed for 24 hours, and discharged home 24 hours. With regards to decision rules for pediatric minor head injury, there's two landmark studies that address this. The one was the Cooperman study from The Lancet in 2009 called Identification of Children at Very Low Risk of Clinically Important Brain Injuries After Head Trauma, a prospective cohort study. And they said that no CT head is recommended for low-risk criteria for clinically important traumatic brain injury. And they define clinically important traumatic brain injury as less than a 0.05% of death, neurosurgery, intubation for 24 hours, or admission for 48 hours due to traumatic brain injury on CT scan. And the criteria were for patients less than two years old that they had to have a normal mental status, no scalp hematoma except frontal, no loss of consciousness for greater than five seconds, no palpable skull fracture, and a non-severe mechanism. The definition of a severe mechanism was MVA with ejection, death of another passenger or rollover, pedestrian or cyclist without a helmet struck by a car, fall from greater than five feet if the patient was more than two years old, or fall from greater than three feet if the patient was less than two years old, or head struck by a high-impact object. The next study that was important was the CATCH study out of the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and CATCH stands for Canadian Assessment of Tomography for Childhood Injury. And they said as long as they don't have any medium or high-risk criteria, a CT head is not required. There were four high-risk factors, which were 100% sensitive for the need for neurological intervention. That was failure to reach GCS of 15 within two hours, suspicion of open skull fracture, worsening headache, or worsening irritability. The three medium risk factors, which was 98% sensitive prediction of brain injury on CT scan, was a large boggy hematoma on the scalp, signs of basal skull fracture, dangerous mechanism like an MVC, fall from elevation of greater than three feet or five stairs, or fall from a bicycle with no helmet. We're going, we're going to move on to this kid that I, who limps into the emergency department, Adam. It's a Friday evening at 9 p.m. You're working. It's a six-year-old male who, uh, mother says the kid's been febrile off and on for the past four days with some constitutional, with some vomiting and some diarrhea, uh, complaining of some vague abdominal pain, but no urinary symptoms, and, and uh, the whole family's had some gastro. The kid's also complained of some of sore throat recently, 
And now he's complaining of right knee pain. And that's why the mother brought the kid into the emergency department because he's kind of limping a little bit and has a knee pain. So recent fevers, some vomiting, diarrhea, and now right knee pain. No other symptoms of respiratory infection. There's no rash, there's no past history, and immunizations are up to date. So the kid that looks actually quite well, but with some abnormal vital signs, the kid's febrile, tachycardic, there's no neck rigidity, the throat looks normal, the heart sounds are normal, the abdomen's soft. There's no obvious joint swelling or redness or tenderness, but the knee has uh, limited range of motion, can flex to only about 90 degrees, can extend well. There's a good range of motion of the hip, and you get the kid up to walk, and in fact, the kid's uh, got a, you know, a bit of a limp. So, Adam, how are you going to, what are you worried about, and uh, how are you going to work this kid up who's got a bit of a fever and, and a bit of a, uh, a, a knee problem, although it's not obviously red or, or hot? So, so the one thing that strikes, a few things that strike me, one, um, the child comes in with vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain, and also has a knee problem. So that seems to be a, it's a, a little peculiar in, ter in terms of a constellation of symptoms. Uh, the temperature seems quite high as well for a child with uh, vomiting and diarrhea related to gastro. So th those are, that's a, kind of a red flag for me. Uh, my initial thoughts are, you know, does this child uh, potentially have some, something that may be post-viral related to uh, the vomiting and diarrhea? It seems as though the hip has good range of motion, but I would always want to, you know, do a careful exam of the hip and make sure that the knee pain is not related uh, to the hip itself. Assuming that the hip is normal and I'm comfortable with that, I'd focus in on the knee and say, listen, you know, is the knee, is there a joint effusion there, is it tender, and really try to hone down exactly uh, where the maximal point of tenderness is. Because I guess the question is, 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 is the knee pain and swelling related to the joint or is it related to the bone? Is it a septic arthritis or, you know, is it osteomyelitis. So I'd like to go ahead and order some x-rays, um, and do some blood tests, put in an IV, uh, order off some inflammatory markers, and, and go from there. So my approach would be. All right. So white counts only 8.7. Uh, the ESR was 47. The chemistry was normal. They sent off some blood cultures. They did a urinalysis. It was normal. They did an x-ray, and that was uh, thought to be entirely normal. Right, so at this at this point, you know, we have something we have we have signs and symptoms of an inflammatory process here. Uh, the the big the differential is, you know, is it osteo or is it uh, a septic joint? And I guess you know, with the knee X-ray being normal, it's, that's not particularly helpful. It doesn't really guide you uh, one way or the other. So uh, I think the decision point comes here as to whether or not you're going to tap the knee. Uh, if you feel like there's an effusion there, I think it would be uh, reasonable to go ahead and tap the knee, uh, take a look at the fluid to see if there's any evidence of a septic uh, joint. And and there's no effusion. Right. So if there's no effusion there, there's potentially nothing to tap. Uh, and then you need to decide, well, how, uh, how, how am I going to go ahead and work this kid up? Um, I think admission at this point would be a reasonable alternative, depending on where you are and what your access to resources is. Uh, I'd likely admit this child in my institution. I'd have orthopedics come down and see him. And then the plan of management for this child would most, most likely go on to be uh, bone scanned in the morning or the next day to rule out osteomyelitis. Okay, so this kid was reassessed a couple hours later after some Tylenol, some Advil. His temperature came down to 37.7. His heart rate was down. They re-examined his right knee. It was non-tender. It was, still wasn't red. There was no obvious effusion. The kid looked well. Mom wanted to take the kid home. The pediatrician actually came down and saw the patient, and uh, the, they sent the kid home actually with diagnosis of fever, gastroenteritis, and synovitis. Um, Dennis, I'll throw the ball over to you. If you were the consulting pediatrician, what would you be worrying about? Uh, for the, with this kid? 
Um, first thing is we've got to be very careful about the follow-up here because we can presume synovitis, but we haven't proved it. Um, and I've, I agree with um, Adam's comments before. Um, I would want to go back, uh, give a shout-out for some of the history things here. Um, we've got to be careful of things like sickle cell uh, disease, which can present with... Uh, um, bony crises, and they have a, a huge um, possibility of getting septic and dying from sepsis. Um, have they got other autoimmune or immune deficiencies? So a family history and a past medical history is going to be very important there. Another way of approaching this is, you know, there, there are only four main re things that, that make children limp. Trauma, we've ruled it out. Infection, post-infection is on the list. Neoplasia, uh, leukemia, bone pain, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, white blood count and differential is, goes a long way to help rule that out. And then orthopedic problems like uh, congenital dislocation of the hip that's been missed or uh, transient synovitis of the hip uh, with uh, referred pain to the, to the um, knee. But th this, this smells very suspicious. I don't like that high fever and I, I'd be scared about this synovitis thing. So if your question to me is what would we do, if they've gone home, I'd be very careful to make sure they're going to be seen and followed and reassessed to make sure that we're not missing a, um, some, a sepsis, uh, at least, i.e. bone, a joint or bone. It makes me worried. That 40.2 is yeah. way out of... So, in fact, blood cultures came back positive the next day for group A beta hemolytic strep. He was called back to the emergency department. His temperature was 38.7. He was uncomfortable. He was unable to fully weight bear. He was given penicillin. He was admitted to pediatrics. The MRI showed the ne next day showed osteomyelitis of his distal femur with a subperiosteal abscess. Um, and this, this kid actually got quite sick in the hospital, actually. He, he went shocky the next day. Uh, um, his urine output went down, his, his uh, white count went up, his platelets went down, he became acidotic, his chest x-ray showed evidence of uh, respiratory uh, disease, uh, pneumonitis, severe pneumonia, and he had to be transferred to, uh, he had to be intubated and transferred to McMaster where he was in the hospital for about three weeks. So, Anna, any comments about sniffing out the, the septic kid in Emerge? You've got years of experience of, of smelling... Well, you know something, the keys here are the heart rate and the fever. They were out of proportion, right? Um, even when he came back with a temperature of 38, please go back, his pulse rate was 130-something. This smelt of sepsis, right? Yeah. Now, can I say that what Adam said is absolutely a basic approach, and Dennis gave you the differential diagnosis. This used to be a very frequent concern for us. You can get osteomyelitis with no fever, no fever at all, or you can have high fever. You can have in the first 48 hours an absolutely normal, absolutely normal sedimentation rate. And a normal x-ray for 10 days. That's right. So your, your index of suspicion and the way you communicate your concerns are everything. The one thing I'll tell you is a limp with a fever is something you should worry about. And if the kid did not look too bad and he'll cool down, and if the pulse rate had come down below 100, it went to 110 when his temperature was normal, I would agree with Adam to admit him. I'll tell you what I did for many years with these 
is we had an arrangement with our radiologist that we could get a scan or a CT or a follow-up the next day, all right? So with this kid, if he'd settled completely, I would have sent him home, and I would not have sent him for follow-up with his, I don't care who his pediatrician is or family doctor, I would have brought him back to our institution, and I would have had a bone scan done the next day, and most bone scans are positive in the first 48 hours. Or, so or, that's or the MRIs. Only, or an MRI, if you can get it. But that you have to speak to radiologists. You can't get it in the middle of the night. So be on the lookout for septic arthritis in kids with limp and or fever. Next, Dr. Latopsy is going to ask the expert panel about dexamethasone use in asthma as opposed to prednisone. Is dexamethasone in severe asthma over uh, two or three days preferred over uh, pediapred? Interesting study out recently um, on using a single high dose for asthma acute asthma, single high dose dexamethasone. So dexamethasone has a biological half-life of 48 to 72 hours. So if you give a really big whack, you've probably given the kid his three to five days of steroid coverage for his asthma. So with compliance issues, uh, costing issues, people who can't afford drugs, giving a really big dose of X, um, as long as you don't give them a GI bleed, which happens about one in 100, apparently. I've never seen it, but that's what the literature says. Uh, you, you can uh, actually obviate the need to give three or four days of uh, prednisone. But in terms of the drugs working, speaking as a clinical pharmacologist, the steroid is going to do a steroid's job. It's really the bioavailability and how long it lasts. So if you give DEX, you can get by with even a single dose or maybe two. Um, otherwise, it's palatability, compliance. Okay. Have you all tasted dexamethasone? Exactly. Yeah. It's nice and sweet. How many of you have taken Pediapred and that other garbage? It's awful. You know, you take a small taste, you're still burping it an hour later. And the volumes. Yeah. yeah. And the second question then, Adam, in bronchiolitis, is two doses of nebulized epinephrine and five days of de PO dexamethasone valid treatment? <laughs> <laughs> How much time do we have? Yeah. 30 so, seconds. Yes or no? So, uh, so very controversial um, paper uh, that Amy Plint published in, in the New England Journal, which looked, looked at uh, high-dose dexamethasone and epinephrine, um, essentially showing that um, five days of, of that um, um, showed increase, increased uh, outcomes or improved outcomes. So, so I work in Calgary, um, where David Johnson was one of the co-investigators on, on that study. And um, interestingly enough, uh, he doesn't actually do that in his own practice. And we've kind of had uh, discussions back and forth. I guess the verdict is the jury is still out to, to, to kind of um, put it bluntly. We don't really know what the proper treatment for bronchiolitis mm -hmm. is, even after all of, all of these studies and meta-analyses that have been done. You know, some, most people would start off with a dose of epinephrine and give it a try. Um, half of my colleagues where I work would give high-dose dex, and the other half would give nothing unless there's a um, history of ATP. And then maybe a quarter of them would send the child home with five, dose, five days of dex. Uh, I'm not in that camp. I'm waiting for more evidence before I make that decision to change my practice. So certainly no consensus. Yeah, just remember, though, that for most people and patients, epinephrine is not a home remedy. So the moment that you've started giving epinephrine, you are kind of obligating yourself either to a period of observation or admission. So it, it, it's a drug that I, th I think I tend to use for the kids that are sick enough that they're going to need that. If they don't need it, don't give it, because once you've given it, you have to 
keep on giving them or, or make sure that they don't keep needing it. So just as a practical issue, EPI is sort of along the path of observation and admission. Let's uh, go on to the next case. Well, I, I want to get some advice from you of how you're treating acutus, of how you guys are treating acutotitis media in 2012 in both kids over two and under two. Here's a kid who comes in, a nine-year-old male who comes a 24-hour history of ear pain. And this is a little bit different because, you know, he's got, you know, the pain suddenly gets worse and then, you know, there's some discharge coming from his ear, right? And he feel, actually he feels much better as soon as he has this discharge coming from his ear. Uh, there's no preceding fever or upper respiratory symptoms. Interestingly, this kid had a basilar skull fracture many, many years ago. He had a penicillin and a zethro allergy. So nine-year-old male, 24-hour history of ear pain, and now he's got some discharge from, his, from, from the ear. So on examination, he was afebrile. He looked well. There was a lot of discharge from his left canal. But otherwise, the exam was completely normal. Uh, so Dennis, let's take it. How are you treating uh, How do you treating acute otitis media in nine-year-olds in 2012 and uh, with a bulging tomatic membrane. And as a corollary, how are you going to treat this kid who's already perforated his tympanic membrane and has some discharge coming from his ear? Well, you didn't give us a straightforward case. Um, Correct. So if we took a typical nine-year-old who doesn't have a previous skull fracture, once you've got an abscess that's draining, that's the treatment. You just have to keep it clean. So. He had an abscess in his ear, the TM perforated, the pus is coming out, the pain is relieved, keep the ear clean. You might use some drops for that, which we can discuss in a moment. But that should be definitive. Um, as you're implying, over two with a, an otitis media, if you give pain relief, you probably don't have to give antibiotics at all. If it doesn't resolve in 48 to 72 hours, you can consider giving an antibiotic. So older children with ear infections don't usually need antibiotics unless it uh, perseveres. Then you said, if it's already perforated, well, I guess, um, what kind of drops? If you're going to give anything, again, in general pediatrics, I was taught not to give it. But when I've spoken to the ENT guys, they all want us to use Cipridex. So if you're going to use it because you think there might be secondary otitis externa, or they've got swimmer's ear, or they've got secondary infection of the canal after perforating, use Cipridex. Would you have to use anything at all? If they can keep the ear clean, they can clean it, not with a, a Q-tip, just to, as far as the ear, their finger can reach, because Q-tips uh, often uh, stir things up in the middle ear. I wouldn't do much else. This kid with the previous skull fracture, you've got to suspect something that uh, towards a mastoiditis air cell infection. You've got to be very careful. The minimum would be very careful follow-up. You have to have examined the mastoid and, and look for t tenderness. Even with that other case that you've mentioned of osteomyelitis, it would be unusual to get osteomyelitis without having bone pain. And if you examine, you know, whether it's the, the tibia or whether you examine the, the, the mastoid, if you've got to be very careful there's no tenderness and, and follow up on that. So lots of questions, so lots of answers. Complications, be very careful. If it's perforated, keep it clean. Kid, in fact, was discharged with some Tylenol, some Septra, some Burosol, and in fact, came back. 24 hours later, uh, sleepy, a little bit lethargic, and difficult to arouse. Let me tell you what happened to this kid. In fact, this kid was febrile when he came into the emergency department, had a uh, glasicoma scale of only 11. He was, uh, he was confused. There was no obvious meningismus, uh, and his mastoid on examination actually wasn't red or hot, and the rest of the examination was fairly unremarkable. He was given some septriaxone uh, 
intravisually and went on for a stat CT hit, which showed uh, otitis media, otitis externa, mastoiditis. He had a significant amount of bone resorption, uh, and uh, there was a bony defect between the mastoid and the medial cranial fossa, actually, on the, on the mm -hmm. left side there. There was a complete mm -hmm. mastoid opacification, and there was mm -hmm. actually uh, there was a hole there between in the medial uh, cranial mm -hmm. fossa. So, Anna, and in terms of, uh, you know, complications of otitis mm -hmm. media, um, which kind of kids do you worry about then who, who may mm -hmm. go on to develop a complication of otitis media? Uh, I mean, Dennis is saying, watch and wait the nine-year-old. Don't treat them all initially mm -hmm. for the first 48 hours if it continues. But any other subgroup of kids that you say, no, I'm going to treat you right away, mm -hmm. or I'm, I'm, you know. Fine. Those children you should treat right away are, one, any child who is of Aboriginal heritage. We do not know why, but Inuit children and many First Nations um, children are highly susceptible to really malignant otitis media, even when they're immunized. So this isn't, sometimes we forget. We think, oh, that's because they're in poor communities up north. No, there seems to be something genetic. So I just, we're in Canada, and I'm going to say that is a very high risk group, a higher, much higher incidence of mastoiditis, intracranial abscesses, and meningitis in that group of people. Dennis mentioned sickle cell. Let me tell you, sickle cell, leukemia. These days we're using high-dose steroids for a lot of things. There are a lot of people with inflammatory bowel disease who are in immune suppression therapy, rheumatoid arthritis, many other conditions. So they come into the category. And if there is a defect, right? Like if they have um, this child with a fracture, uh, you don't know if he's been left with a permanent opening uh, or not, right? Uh, therefore, he is high risk. Those are the kind of things that are high risk, and you give antibiotics immediately. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, I agree entirely in the watch and wait and you don't have to re-examine the ears. If the symptoms are still there, just as David said, whether you still have symptoms or the ear still looks red at 48 hours, um, antibiotics are then given. But I wouldn't take a chance on someone with a complex history. Okay. Antibiotic of choice. High dose amoxil, unless they have an allergy or unless they are like someone with cystic fibrosis or something where the incidence of other things, right? Or non-immunized child where I might want to give broader coverage for H flu. Well, just to remember yeah. this whole thing about allergies to, um, to penicillins. If someone has had an allergy to amoxyl or something like that, if you need to get onto a cephalosporin, you can go there if the allergy consisted only of skin. In other words, the, the cross-reactivity, I think you could, you could go to court and you'd find support for, for using, if you've had a, a penicillin to use a cephalosporin or vice versa, as long as it was just a rash. You can go to the other drug. Another thing is that if you're going to use biaxin or a macrolide, these are bacteriostatic drugs. And if, you, if you've got a slightly sick kid, you don't want to be using those kind of drugs. Yeah. One other circumstance which you may run into is you may have this child who comes in who has otitis media. You want to give antibiotics, but the baby is throwing up left, right, and center. And so uh, in that sort of circumstance, uh, what I normally do is get, would give one dose of IM ceftriaxone, and it's kind of like a lifesaver in that 
uh, situation. Uh, one dose is equivalent to seven days of uh, seven days of amoxicillin yeah. three times a day. So, so just to show you that mastoiditis still occurs, mm -hmm. though, mm -hmm. uh, at our center we we see uh, twenty-five to thirty thousand kids per annum. We see about mm -hmm. two or three cases of mastoiditis per year. So, it still happens, and these kids can get really sick. I think an interesting thing on, on that is that we can use the, the ciprofloxacin. Those kind of drugs can be used in kids, yes. but not as first line. All that being said about acutotitis media in children, I just want to review the most recent Canadian guidelines on otitis media. It's from 2009 from Pediatric Child Health, and it's put out by the Canadian Pediatric Society and Infectious Diseases and Immunization Committee, and it's called Management of Acute Otitis Media. The guidelines outline the watchful waiting approach, that is observation for 48 to 72 hours without antimicrobial agents in appropriate cases. Well, what are these appropriate cases? They are, the child has to be older than six months of age, the child does not have immunodeficiency, chronic cardiac or pulmonary disease, anatomical abnormalities of the head or neck, or a history of complicated otitis media. That's otitis media accompanied by suppurative complications or chronic perforation. And lastly, the patient cannot have Down syndrome. Next, in order for this watchful waiting approach, the illness cannot be severe. That is, otalgia appears to be mild and fever is lower than 39 degrees in the absence of antipyretics. Finally, the parents need to be capable of recognizing signs of worsening illness and can readily access medical care if the child does not improve. If the child's status worsens or does not improve during the observation period and the primary diagnosis still appears to be acute otitis media, antimicrobial therapy should be started. One of the questions they ask in this is what is an appropriate duration of antimicrobial therapy for acute otitis media? And they say that five days of antimicrobial treatment with amoxicillin or a second-generation cephalosporin is at least as effective as 10 days of therapy in children older than two years of age with uncomplicated otitis media. 10-day antimicrobial treatment course is appropriate for children younger than two years of age, children with frequent recurrent otitis media or otitis media with a perforated tympanic membrane, and in children who failed their initial antimicrobial because these children are at increased risk of treatment failure. Exceptions to this rule are azithromycin, for which a five-day course is the maximum, and ceftriaxone, for which one dose is usually given for uncomplicated cases, and three doses for cases that failed initial therapy. With regards to complications of otitis media, like Dr. Lotovsky was presenting the case of a patient with mastoiditis, we are seeing less of it, the guidelines ask, what are the risks of complications if antimicrobials are deferred or not prescribed for acutitis media? They say that it seems intuitive that the early use of antimicrobials will reduce the incidence of serious complications like mastoiditis, meningitis, and intracranial abscesses. They say that in the Netherlands, where antimicrobial prescription rates for acutitis media are only 30%, the incidence of pediatric mastoiditis is approximately double the incidence in countries where the prescription rates are over 90%. Nonetheless, given the rarity of mastoiditis, the authors calculated that at least 2,500 prescriptions would have to be filled to prevent one case of mastoiditis. They also point out 
that only approximately 25% of mastoiditis cases require a mastoidectomy, and that approximately one half of children with mastoiditis develop this complication despite previously taking antimicrobials for cutotitis media. There's no comparable studies for other severe superiorative complications of otitis media, but again, it seems likely that thousands of children would have to be treated to prevent one complication. This being said, you should always be on the lookout for acute mastoiditis, and if a child does have the signs, you need to investigate. What about the choice of antibiotics for acute otitis media according to the guidelines? Well, the first-line treatment is amoxicillin, but it's a high dose, 75 milligrams per kilogram per day, to 90 milligrams per kilogram per day, divided twice per day. The second line choices are cefprozil, 30 milligrams per kilogram per day, cefuroxime, 30 milligrams per kilogram per day, ceftriaxone, 50 milligrams per kilogram IM or IV, just for one dose, or azithromycin, 10 milligrams per kilogram once per day for one dose, and then five milligrams per kilogram once a day for four doses. And finally, clarithromycin, 15 milligrams per kilogram per day, divided twice per day. If initial therapy fails, that is, no symptomatic improvement after two or three days, then the next line of treatment would be clavulin at the same dose as amoxicillin. That's 90 milligrams per kilogram per day. If otitis media-related symptoms do not resolve with clavulin, a course of ceftriaxone, 50 milligrams per kilogram per day, IM or IV, once per day for three days should be considered. Alternatively, a referral to ENT for a tympanocentesis can be considered to determine the etiological agent and guide therapy. We'll put the tables for antimicrobial therapy and the algorithms for watchful waiting for acutotitis media in children in our written summary. Next, David Carr is going to talk about a relatively new study from 2011 out of Ottawa concerning subarachnoid hemorrhage workups and whether we need to be doing LPs after a negative CT scan. On our episode on headaches a few months back with Anil Chopra and Stella Yu, we had talked about how if you have a patient that you suspect of subarachnoid hemorrhage and you get a negative CT scan, the sensitivity isn't quite good enough and you still need to go onto LP. This study that Dr. Carr is going to talk about has changed a lot of people's practice. So here's Dr. Carr's take on the Perry study from 2011 out of Ottawa. The first paper I'm going to talk about is probably the most important paper of the day, which is a paper by Jeff Perry and his group in BMJ, which said, can the sensitivity of CT scans performed at six hours rule out the diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage? Clearly, the push in emergency medicine is don't do an LP. We don't want to do an LP. Let's see what this paper did. So this paper asked that question. A 35-year-old guy comes in with a sudden onset of headache or headache with syncope, and, what, and he's neurologically intact, and can that CT rule it out? It was a prospective cohort of uh, 11 Canadian tertiary care EDs for about a nine-year span, and they had a ton of patients, over about 3,000 patients who were older than 15, non-traumatic headaches, GCS of 15, and they had a peak onset of headache within an hour. They excluded patients who had headaches for a very long time, who had very similar 
presentations of headaches just like this, and they excluded people with papilledema, focal neurological deficits, and patients who were transferred from another hospital to be worked up as for a subarachnoid. And what they looked at is they looked at an outcome measure of subarachnoid. And the way they defined subarachnoid is they said subarachnoid blood on CT, and this was um, third generation CT scans up to 320 slice. They looked at exanthrochromia that was visually inspected in the CSF, and they looked at five times 10 to the six RBCs in the CSF, and they looked at these patients for six months. And in their group of the 3,000 plus patients they saw, they had a, a prevalence rate of about 7.7%. And then they went back and looked at two different groups, a group that presented within six hours and a group that presented longer. In the within six hour group, they had about 13% subarachnoids of those patient groups. And when they looked at all patients, they said the sensitivity of CT in that group, all the 3,000 plus patients, was about 93%. And when they looked at the group that was greater than six hours, they said it was about 86%. But then when they looked at that magic group less than six hours, they found 100% sensitivity, 100% specificity, 100% positive and negative predictive value. That sounds fantastic. Isn't this perfect? It really does, it sounds amazing. So what are some concerns? One of the things that comes up in this study is they included people up to an hour. And I know most of us think about subarachnoids is that classic th thunderclap. And we defined thunderclap in previous papers as within a minute. One, they had a few subarachnoids that were diagnosed within 15 minutes and 45, but the median time of onset of their peak headaches was about three and a half minutes. So really, even though they had a larger inclusion, maybe they included some more benign headaches that some of us may or may not have considered, really they were dealing with a cohort probably similar to what we see. They also looked at only about 50% uh, got LPs after normal CTs. So Often we'll have patients who were working up a subarachnoid, we'll do the CT, and then we kind of convince the patient not to have the LP, and we're just like, oh, you know, maybe you need an LP, maybe you don't, it really, is it gonna hurt? Oh yeah, it could hurt, it could hurt. You know, we, we kind of don't want them to do it, and then we write, patient refused LP, that sort of thing. <laughs> so there are a group, and you wonder with that is, are we missing some subtle subarachnoids by not doing it? The group that didn't, that did get the LPs tended to be younger, and they tended to have the worst headache of their life, and they had a much shorter onset to peak intensity. And that was the six-hour group did get less LPs. And the other thing is they arbitrarily picked this five to the 10, six um, positive red blood cells as a subarachnoid. I know if I call my neurosurgeons and uh, you know, have any red blood cells, they'll always tell me, oh, you know, I could have one red blood cell. They said, oh. You should go a level above. Could be a subarachnoid. Even if you had 10,000 in the first tube and one, they'll always tell you that. So I don't know where this five times 10 to the six cutoff came. It's, it's not born in literature, but it's something that they just picked this cutoff. The other thing they said is, must be a qualified radiologist. So who here has CTs read by residents? So those are not what the study would define as qualified radiologists. They had to be either neuroradiologists or um, people who did a ton of uh, reading of head CTs. They couldn't be resident interpretations. They also, they lost 2% of their patients, which is not a big deal, but when you define an outcome as um, 
you know, they said, okay, well, if they're alive in six months, we're assuming they don't have a subarachnoid. There's a little bit of challenge because follow-up is not the gold standard for the outcome. So, you know, they, they did a really good job of charting down where people went and they weren't alive, they were alive, they didn't go to a neurosurgical center somewhere else. But does that mean they didn't have a subarachnoid? So that's another concern. And of course, this is just a, a chart. This is a review, a cohort. It's not a validated study. I think what we can gather from this is we're moving to the point where the likelihood of a false negative CT is probably getting equivalent to a false positive LP. I don't think LPs are entirely dead yet. Clearly, for the group that's greater than six hours in onset, that's something to think about because the sensitivity is way too poor to rule out a subarachnoid with that test. And LPs have some other diagnostic value in terms of picking up other sinister cause of headaches as well. I think the commentary and the most important thing from this talk is to think about headaches as a code subarachnoid. Educate your colleagues, your nurses that you work with to say, Dave, I got this guy in the waiting room. He's got this headache. It's sudden. It's scary. Do you want me to enter a CT for him? Absolutely. And I think, you know, we do this with our code stroke patients. The nurses will come find me. I'm going to order a stroke CT on this person. They have weakness. We do this all the time. I think we want to get a message home, which is let's get these people through investigations sooner. And I think that's the key point from this study. I think in that six-hour group, we can feel really good about potentially ruling out subarachnoids if you work in a center that has all the specifics that apply to, this, to you from this study. The reference for the article that Dr. Carr is talking about is from BMJ in July 2011. The article is called Sensitivity of Computed Tomography Performed Within Six Hours of Onset of Headache for Diagnosis of Subarachnoid Hemorrhage, Prospective Cohort Study, and it's by Perry and Ian Steele and his group out of Ottawa. The bottom line is that if the inclusion criteria apply to your patient, that is, the headache onset is within an hour, the time to CT is within six hours, the patient has a GCS of 15 and is perfectly neurologically intact, and you're using an experienced radiologist who's reading the scan in real time, given the power of the study, the chance of missing a clinically significant subarachnoid hemorrhage appears to be really, really, really low, enough that you can be comfortable ruling out subarachnoid hemorrhage. While the study hasn't been validated, it seems like this is the way we're going. For now, at very minimum, this should help guide your discussion with your patients in terms of suggesting an LP, though you should probably still correlate this with your pretest clinical probability. In other words, if you really think someone's got a subarachnoid hemorrhage clinically, you shouldn't use this six-hour rule to not do an LP. If your clinical pretest probability is really low and they present within six hours, then I think this study is good enough evidence that you do not need to go on to LP. We're going to change gears completely now and go from subarachnoid hemorrhage to everyone's favorite subject, anorectal disorders. Dr. McKinnon goes through some of the evidence base for what we should be doing in our patients who present with anorectal disorders. This is a subject that isn't talked about too much, but I think is very important because these patients are often mismanaged. So the first thing you have to know about the, the uh, anal rectal disorders, when we see these patients, these are the things we should be inquiring about. These are the symptoms they can get. You want to ask about pain, you want to ask about bleeding, swelling, itching, 
any discharge, and any rectal urgency. These, these are all going to be important symptoms as we work through all the diagnoses we're going to talk about. So let's move right into a case. So case one is a 35-year-old male. He's got perianal pain and swelling for about three days. And the day that he came to the ED, it became really severe. It's from a skin tag, thrombosed external hemorrhoid. You can see the purple color. It's going to be exquisitely tender on exam. They're not tender all around the area, just on that thrombosed external hemorrhoid. So we're going to talk a little bit about hemorrhoids. So let's just briefly review. This is just from the textbooks. This is all basic stuff. We're going to dive into the literature in a second. But as we all remember, so internal hemorrhoids, they come from above the dentate line. So because of that, they're generally not painful, and they can bleed. That's how they usually present is with bleeding. Whereas external hemorrhoids, they originate distal to the dentate line. They often don't, very little or no bleeding. They can bleed, but it's not the usual presentation. They're covered with skin, and they're very, very painful. And especially when they thrombose is usually when the, they become acutely painful. Most of the textbooks and literature talk about the WASH therapy. And we're actually going to go through this and talk about what's the um, evidence behind these. But it's warm water, analgesics, stool softeners, and a high-fiber diet. And in fact, for most of the anorectal disorders that we see in the ED, this is the recommended treatment. So we're going to go through a little bit about why. So in terms of hemorrhoid treatment, how many people in the last one year in the ED have done a thrombectomy for an external hemorrhoid? I'm going to argue that it's a procedure we should all know how to do, and it's easy to do. It's quick and simple. But what does the Cochrane collaboration say? So as you know, they, really, they like randomized trials. So there were seven of them. Total was only about 378 patients. And there were multiple different types of laxatives. So some of the studies just simply used bran or Senecott or lactulose. Interestingly, none of them actually used colase, which, again, a lot of my colleagues, we always debate on the usefulness of, of colase. There was the one famous study that showed one bran muffin a day is more effective than 100 of colase BID that my one colleague loves to quote that study all the time. But anyway, getting back to the Cochrane review, they used multiple different laxatives. And what they found is when they combined all the studies that they did find improved symptoms with a risk ratio of 0.47 and it was statistically significant. And they also noticed decreased uh, uh, bleeding and again the risk ratio is 0.5. So it seems that laxatives actually do make sense. There is some evidence behind them. So. And this is one of the things that I think we commonly tell people with most anal rectal disorders. You never want the patient to be constipated. It's going to make all these things worse, specifically hemorrhoids. So let's move on to SITS baths, which we, again, sort of knee-jerk reaction. We just tell our patients to do this. So this was a paper that actually looked at SITS baths and did a review of the literature. It's not a Cochrane review, but they did a review of the literature. It's in Diseases of the Colon and Rectum, which I became quite familiar with. It became my bathroom reading for the last few months. And uh, they offered me a free subscription because I kept going to it so much. But let's have to see what this had to look. This was from 2005. And when they looked at all the evidence, a lot of the studies actually compared warm versus cold or this much salt versus a different amount of salt or no salt. And there was actually only one randomized control trial that compared SITS bath to placebo. But what this paper concluded, these authors concluded that really the evidence doesn't support. And to be honest, it is kind of a hassle and time consuming for patients. You got to make them twice a day, kind of hop in the bath. And it's kind of a big deal. And really, if it doesn't do anything, maybe we shouldn't. But. So let's talk about the medical treatment. How many people use sort of recommend Anusol or Preparation H, which is essentially hydrocortisone? 
The evidence on that is actually very lacking. There's really Most of the textbooks will say there's no evidence for it, and the literature as well when it's in the uh, review papers. And you know, they just sort of caution against long-term use of the, ster of the uh, topical steroids, the changes to the skin. And you, know, you could see patients could potentially use it for a long time because once an external hemorrhoid, the acute thrombosis is gone, you're left with a skin tag. So that can stay there for a long time that a patient might think they need to keep using uh, anusol. And there's one study I want to focus on here because it had probably the most compelling results. So they looked at topical nifedipine 0.3% and lidocaine 1.5%, gel BID times two weeks. For this particular treatment regimen, the theory is that nifedipine can modulate resting sphincter tone, reduces pain and inflammation. So this was probably the most compelling paper of topical treatment of steroids. So they looked at conservative treatment of an acutely thrombosed external hemorrhoid, which is what we think our patient has, with topical nifedipine. From way back in 2001, they had 98 patients, and they actually randomized them. So nifedipine with Lido or just lidocaine. And if you look at the, the treatment differences, they're pretty remarkable numbers. So complete pain relief, 86% if you use nifedipine and lidocaine versus only 50%. That's after seven days. And the resolution of the hemorrhoids, 92% with nifedipine and lidocaine versus only 46%. And that's after 14 days. There's really not much in medicine that gives us this, month, this great of an effect. Now, again, it's one study. It's very small numbers. My sources before I did the last talk had told me that it's not available. Topical nifedipine is not available in the States, but it is available in Canada. But what's available in Canada is a powder that may or may not be able to mix. It depends on the pharmacy. And so this may or may not be available. You can check with your local pharmacy. But again, it's based on the literature. This is probably the most effective topical treatment. So let's talk about excision then. Again, in the literature, when they talk about how to sort of surgically manage thrombosed hemorrhoids, they talk about excision versus incision. And they pretty much universally say, whether it's textbooks or in the literature, that excision is recommended, that you don't just want to actually make a slit in the skin and just take out the clot. It'll give them some pain relief. But... With excision, you can actually more effectively evacuate the clot, and you can actually prevent the formation of skin tags. So this is really the most compelling paper that's in the literature about why we probably should be doing excision. There's no randomized controlled trial, but this is the closest evidence we have. So this was from 2004 in my new favorite journal, The Diseases of Colon and the Rectum. They had 231 patients. Now what they did, this was not randomized. This, they took a, a retrospective look at all their patients, that get the, the previous 231 patients. Some of them had excision, and some of them just had conservative treatment, which was the sitz baths and the analgesics and that. And this again showed pretty remarkable numbers. So the ones that had excision, only 6.3% had a recurrence versus a quarter of the people that had conservative treatment. And symptom resolution was much quicker in the patients that had excision versus 24 days. So we're going to go over how to do it. It's very easy to do. I use a suture tray for this. Uh, I find it quicker than doing a laceration. I find these are very amenable to just local anesthetic. You can do procedural sedation if you need to. I just find you don't need to with these. And I'm a big fan of procedural sedation. I just find that these are easy and you can have them relatively painless if you do them properly. So for the painless part, this is probably your most important step is how you infiltrate the anesthetic. So the local anesthetic. You can use lidocaine, you can use marcaine to give them a little bit of extra effect if you want, or use a combination. You want to inject right into the hemorrhoid itself. You don't want to do, they talk about sphincter blocks or perianal nerve blocks, 
those are really painful. You're going in really deep. You're going into the sphincter. You're risking hematomas. I, I don't personally feel comfortable doing those. So just by putting a needle through the skin tag or through the, uh, the skin that's overlying, it doesn't actually hurt that much. They don't really jump up. You just go in really slow. You start with a little bit of xylocaine. And just like when you infiltrate anywhere else, just go really slow. You can talk to the patient if you want. And, just, and after you know 30 or 60 seconds, I just find you can get a good amount of freezing in there that provides very effective uh, analgesia. Once you have good freezing, then it's easy. You just take a scalpel. And the key is you don't just want to make one slit through the middle, which would be an IND. You actually just want, you want to make, they describe an elliptical incision. So you just want to cut, the, essentially you're cutting the skin tag out. And then you just take the clot. You should have the clot visible. And then you just take the clot out. I'll often squeeze on the sides gently and the clot will pop out. And then I make sure that I've excised the skin tag fully. The one problem when I have, when the residents do it at my place is they tend to not go deep enough to get to the clot. That's probably the biggest problem I see. Again, when you first cut in, there's a lot of redundant skin and the clot can be fairly deep. You're still cutting very superficial. You're not going anywhere near the sphincter, of course. You're just cutting into the hemorrhoid. Just make sure you cut deep enough into the hemorrhoid. And uh, I can tell you that the patients feel a lot better after you do this right away. Afterwards, I give it a cleanse with some saline. I just take some gauze, put some saline on, give it a few wipes, make sure I clean the area. They almost never bleed, or at least not bleed heavily. They ooze a little bit of blood. I just wedge some gauze in between the, the buttocks and then have them pull their underwear off. And I give them a few to go, a few gauze to go, tell them to change it in the next few hours. So let's move on to another case. So we've got a 45-year-old female. She's had rectal pain for a couple days, and it's now becoming very severe. She's, it's actually so bad she's not been able to have a bowel movement for a couple days. Because every time she's tried to go, it just hurts too much, and she just doesn't go. Does, can't get herself to go. So there's a whole spectrum of abscesses in the anal rectal area. So perianal abscess is one of them. This was one good review article, but there are many out there that you can look up. We're going to just talk about them a little bit here. So abscesses and fistulas. So abscesses, perianal is the most common. Ischiorectal, intrasphincteric, and supralevator. These are the more complicated ones. These are the ones that are a little higher up. And we really probably shouldn't be managing. We're going to go through each of these briefly. But we'll talk about the perianal abscesses first. So really the treatment is IND. The easy way out is to probably just give them analgesics, maybe throw some antibiotics, which of course they're unnecessary. It's like any other abscess. You don't really need uh, antibiotics. In terms of sedation, these ones I find it's, they tend to be quite a lot more painful and hard to inject without a lot of pain. They don't have redundant skin, like with a hemorrhoid that they won't, a thrombosed external hemorrhoid that they won't really feel. When you enter the skin around a perianal abscess, it's going to hurt a lot and they jump. And I find for these patients that I'd like to bring them over for procedural sedation. It's just much more humane. But you do want to do this because you want to see if there's evidence of abscess up higher in the rectum because that changes the game a bit. And then they're going to need surgical follow-up and you worry about how deep the abscess actually goes and how sick they're going to get. X-shaped incision is recommended in a number of spots in the literature and the textbooks. Again, just to kind of prevent early closure. And again, followed by our semi-proven therapy of WASH. So warm, fast, analgesics, stool softeners, and high-fiber diet. Now we move up to the more complicated ones. So an ischiorectal abscess. So these are a little more complicated for a number of reasons. Fistulas can develop in about 60%. So for these, OR drainage is recommended. These really should not be. The way these will present 
is a painful swelling on the buttock. It can be very close to the anus or several centimeters away. But it's tempting. You're going to think it's just a buttock abscess. But you've got to be really careful with these. You don't want to just drain them sort of ad lib. You want to be really careful. You want to make sure, see how high up they go. If they, sometimes they come in and they've already spontaneously drained. So you don't want to just stick a probe in because you can actually create a new tract in there. Once they're drained, and again, usually by surgery, they are usually treated with, an antibi with antibiotics because they're deeper, they're, they involve more tissue, so they generally are treated. And again, a surgeon needs to see these for ongoing management. Keep in mind, if these are untreated, they can lead to sphincter dysfunction. And then we get to the rare but higher up abscesses. And again, these patients are more likely to be systemically unwell. They can have a fever. Don't really rely on the white blood cell count. That can be up with anything, but... They might be more likely to have a high white blood cell count. And these are the ones that are more common, but they will generally need a CT to see the extent of the abscess. These patients can get very sick. They should be referred in the ED. They should probably be admitted. They're usually in so much pain that they, um, they're not able to go home. They're just in too much pain. And the other little trick with these is you might see very little or nothing on your exam. If you can get a rectal exam, it could be very painful. You might feel it, but it might be a little higher up. So, but if somebody's complaining of a lot of rectal pain, with or without fever, and you're concerned, and even if you don't see anything on the skin or in the perianal area, remember in the perianal abscess or the ischiorectal, you'll actually usually see something on the skin, an indurated area. But with these ones, you might not. With, with the buttock abscess, you want to try to get a good rectal exam and have a look around. See if they're having any of those symptoms like tenesmus or rectal pressure, because if you just have a simple abscess on the skin, you shouldn't have any, rec any symptoms with your bowel movements at all. shouldn't be painful to have a bowel movement. You shouldn't have any tenesmus or anything like that. But I agree with you. They can be tricky. Can you comment on packing for the perianal? So I'll tell you what I do. So I think the literature says there was that study that showed for abscesses in general that you don't need to do daily packing changes. They really made no difference. So for perianal, what I've done is I've taken a bit of the middle ground. I'll usually put a little piece of ribbon gauze in initially. And I'll just tell the patient the next day, just take it out. Like when you're in the bath tomorrow morning, uh, there's going to be a little piece of ribbon. It'll come out, and that's fine, and then you don't need any after that. So I don't bring them back. The deeper abscesses are different. Again, they're going to be generally seen by surgery. They're more complicated. But the simple perianal abscess, I, in my mind, I don't think the, the evidence supports that you need daily packing changes. And it's a very painful procedure. Fishlas. They're quite related to abscesses. They happen from chronic inflammation. They're very common in patients with IBD, especially Crohn's disease and malignancy. But uh, they also talk about in chronic abscesses or recurrent abscesses. Those patients are very likely to form a fistula. Again, when they form, treated with ciproflagyl and followed up with general surgery, we actually have a pretty good or a fairly sizable Crohn's disease population at St. Mike's. And many of them actually are given supplies of ciproflagyl they have at home. And they're told that as soon as they, there's evidence of a fistula, they're supposed to start them, and then they call up and follow up with GI. So case three, then, we've got a 55-year-old male. He's got diabetes and hypertension. It's his third visit to the eMERGE with rectal pain. So the first visit, he was kind of told to do the WASH therapy. The second time, he got some Percocet. But he's just having way too much pain, and he comes back in. And here is vital signs. Why is his blood pressure 90 on 60? That's low for him. It's tachycardic febrile. Probably go on septic here. His respirates up. He's probably really acidotic. So yeah, you really got to think about Fournier's 
The most common source is actually, it's considered a urological emergency, but the textbooks will say the most common is actually anal rectal uh, disorder, uh, such as start out with an abscess. And uh, they often have a history of chronic disease, diabetes, renal failure, malignancy, mortality, depending on what you read, 10 to 50%, perennial infection, turns into necrotizing fasciitis, they get sepsis, multi-system organ failure. Many bugs can cause it, E. coli, staph strep, enterococcus, and multiple other ones. When you get the deeper abscesses, it can be tricky. So if you get a guy that's looking pretty sick, and the patient we presented probably had uh, an abscess higher up that then turned into, uh, started to uh, cause necrotizing fasciitis. So you might not see this, and that's why he was probably sent home on the first couple. So of course, antibiotic stat, surgical debridement stat. This is one of the things they've looked at hyperbaric oxygen. Just nice to know about, not that we're going to be starting hyperbaric oxygen, but in these uh, really bad soft tissue infections is one of the things that they've shown hyperbaric oxygen may have a role. So we're going to move on to our last case. So we've got a 40-year-old male, presents with rectal discomfort, and he's placed a rubber tube in his rectum about 24 hours ago. And he's been unable to uh, remove despite multiple attempts. So one thing to keep in mind, uh, if you're going to be uh, making an attempt to take these out, if they've had a history of recurrent episodes of this, that they may have a very lax rectal tone, which might actually help you remove it. So one thing to keep in mind. Important to ask about a salt. And um, delayed presentations are very common. So you really need to worry about ischemic segments. So especially in large objects, remember you don't need a lot of pressure on the rectal wall to cause uh, some ischemia. You just need to kind of block the veins, right? Same thing as when you put a splint or a cast on a bit too tight. If you leave that on for a few days and it's just a little bit too tight, they can go back with skin, you know, skin breakdown and an ulcer formation. So it doesn't take much. So if you're going to attempt these, worry about the, the large object that's been in there for a few days. They don't have to have peritonitis because if you're going to be sticking something in to try to take it out, you don't want to perforate a friable rectal wall. Those are the ones you probably want to call the surgeon for and have them uh, maybe in the OR or whatever the surgeon feels comfortable with. Always worry of sharp things. These patients can be at high risk for things like HIV, so you don't want to cut your finger. I generally like to get an x-ray, even if they don't say it's a sharp object, but you just want to be really careful. The other thing is the x-ray will help you see where it is. And if it's really high up, again, they've often tried multiple times, so they've often pushed it up really far. So the x-ray can just help you localize it. Now, in contra contrast to that, even if they've pushed it up, when they've gone to try to have a bowel movement, they can actually it can slide back down. So it very often is uh, right in the rectum on the x-ray. Some of the tricks, though, you can ask the patient to bear down. Again, if you sedate them, you're going to lose this ability. Uh, I find, again, procedural sedation, although you lose the ability for them to bear down. They again talk about this perianal nerve block, which I'm really nervous about. I don't want to be sticking big needles into sphincters, so I'm not doing that, but I like this procedural sedation. And then you can also actually do some suprapubic pressure, depending on how large the object is. Bad speculum versus anoscope. The anoscope... I've found tends to push it up out of reach and really it's too small for anything to fit through the anoscope anyway. So I'd recommend against using those if you're going to try these. The vag speculum is perfect. And we have pla we got plastic vag speculums about two or three years ago and I haven't used them yet because I'm afraid they're going to snap and break. So I I've used the metal ones and they've worked fine. A Foley catheter was inserted with the balloon inflated. Uh, and it was successfully pulled out, so that's one little trick. It, sometimes there's a vacuum effect. So sometimes you can grasp onto it, but when you go to pull, it's just not coming. 
So they talk about inserting a Foley past the object. You can also do an NG tube and injecting air just to get break the suction. And on that lovely note, we're going to break here and the first part of the highlights from the Whistler conference. And there's lots more in the second part. Anil Chopra is going to be talking about shock states. Anna Jarvis is going to be talking about concussion. David Carr is going to be talking about infectious diseases. And Dennis Skolnick is going to be talking about urologic emergencies in children. So until next time, take it easy.